This episode is brought to you by Viore. Give the active people in your life something they'll truly appreciate. Performance apparel from Viore. Whether they're into running, surfing, hiking, or even just casual walks around the block, there's something for everyone. And if you're not sure what to gift them, you can't go wrong with something from Viore's Dream Knit Collection. It's the perfect gift and so comfortable. Get 20% off your first purchase today at Viore. V-U-O-R-I dot com slash Spotify. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. From your morning podcast to your afternoon playlist, State Farm knows you personalize your entire day. And that's why State Farm helps you personalize your insurance with the State Farm Personal Price Plan. It offers coverage options that help protect what you care about most at an affordable price just for you. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices vary by state. Options selected by customer. Availability and eligibility may vary. I'm Kathleen Goldhar, and I'm the host of a new podcast, Crime Story. Every week, we bring you a different crime, told by the storyteller who knows it best. You got one witness who can't be found. You got another witness who's murdered. We couldn't sugarcoat the story. I was getting calls from Cosby's attorney threatening to sue every day. Every crime in one way or another is a reflection of who we are as a people, as a city, as a country. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Lynn? Lynn! Hello! I don't know what they have us out here for anyway. We're supposed to be looking for that little girl who's missing? I know that, you goof. But we're not gonna find her in this stinky old forest full of mosquitoes. If you were a kid running away from home, wouldn't you go somewhere more exciting than this? Ah, you do have a point. I used to go all over the place during the summers when I was a kid. One time I even went all the way to Chicago was back before my mom had dinner on the table. Boy, those were the days, huh? Spending all summer with nothing to do, no responsibilities, no Air Force base saying, today you're gonna go into the woods when it's hot as heck and look for... Wait a tick. What's that? What? There's something on the ground there. Something turquoise. How curious. It's a little pair of shorts. And look, here's a little pair of loafers. And socks. Very neatly folded. What on earth would a little girl be doing in the woods without her clothes? Oh, God. It's... It's her. This is Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Unsolved Murders for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Unsolved Murders in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and on Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. 
You can listen to previous episodes of Unsolved Murders, as well as all other ParCast originals, on Spotify or wherever else you listen to podcasts. This is our first episode on Lynn Harper, a 12-year-old girl whose murder in 1959 forever changed her small town in Ontario, Canada. This week, we'll cover the days leading up to the murder, the discovery of the body, and the devastating trial that followed. Next week, we'll look at what has happened in the years since and what those developments mean for this unsolved case. The year was 1959. Clinton, Ontario, was a sleepy rural town nestled up against a bustling Canadian Air Force base. The base had become particularly valuable during World War II, when the government realized that its topography was extremely similar to another important location overseas. The cliffs of nearby Lake Huron gave off the look and feel of England, where many of its soldiers were being deployed to help defend against Nazi bombings. The similarities made it an ideal place to train Canadian airmen in the use of radar technology, which would be affected by the presence of the cliffs abroad. After the war, the Clinton base remained operational, becoming the largest radar training center in the country. As it grew into a permanent station, accommodations were needed for the wives and families of the men stationed there. So a housing facility was built called the Permanent Married Quarters, Like most things in the military, it was neat and orderly, right on down to its rose bushes. Where you and your family lived in the permanent married quarters was determined by the insignia on your jacket. Sergeants lived with sergeants, and subordinate officers lived with others of their rank. While this hierarchical layout may have seemed a bit clinical to the adults, for the children living in and around the base, it was an absolutely idyllic place to live. In 1959, summer days in Clinton were spent riding bikes up and down the county road, swimming in the local swimming hole, and hitching rides to see the ponies, owned by the town eccentric on Highway 8. No one worried about the safety of their children, and why should they? The craziest thing known to happen around Clinton was farmers losing sight of their calves. This was always a big deal for the kids. Tracking down a calf and bringing it back home to the farm was great fun. Okay, kids, get her in the barn. In you go, girl. Thanks for returning my calf, kiddos. Starting to think you're setting them loose because you like finding them so much. Twelve-year-old Lynn Harper was one of those children. Her father, Leslie Harper, was an officer on the base, and Lynn's family had lived in the permanent married quarters since moving there two years prior, in 1957. Lynn lived with her father, her mother Shirley, and her two siblings, an older brother Barry and a younger brother Jeffrey. Their house on the base was quiet and orderly, so when Lynn craved excitement, she loved going to the nearby homes of friends with bigger, rowdier families. Lynn loved being a part of the action. However, Lynn was a responsible and well-mannered student, active in Sunday school, Bible class, and Girl Guides, uh, the Canadian equivalent of Girl Scouts. Lynn's teachers always spoke very highly of her. Lynn Harper. Oh, she's one of my favorite students. She always sits in the front of the class, always does her homework, and is very eager to participate. I feel bad, though. I think sometimes the other kids don't find her, uh... 
quite as charming as I do. I think she'll do better as an adult, to be honest. But despite her academic success, Lynn had trouble fitting in. She was often described by fellow classmates as bossy or mouthy. The same skills that made her an assertive and organized leader in Girl Guides didn't necessarily make her a popular figure at school. And for all her boldness, she could also be shy. She had a scar on her lip from childhood that sometimes made her self-conscious, especially when she started to become interested in dating and boys. Because Lynn's school was held on the base, she was part of a split class for both 7th and 8th grade students. This was a practical maneuver dictated by the uneven number of kids in each age group and a desire to keep the school's budget down. But it greatly affected Lynn. At 12, Lynn was on the younger end of a class full of 13- and 14-year-olds. She desperately wanted to be a part of their in-crowd, but she tended to find herself on its outside more often than not. So as you might imagine, Lynn was thrilled when she was invited to a party with the older kids on the night of June 5th, 1959. It was a birthday party for one of Lynn's classmates, a popular girl named Lorraine Wood. Lorraine's parents were a little more liberal than most in the religious, orderly town, so it was a rare opportunity to dance and flirt with cute boys. Okay, kids, we're heading out. There's pop in the fridge. Don't touch my beers. And don't do anything I wouldn't do. (laughs) You're giving them a heck of a lot of leeway, Karen. Lynn was excited to be at the party, and she wanted to dance. There was just one problem. No one was asking her to. Not even George Archibald, the 13-year-old boy from her class with whom she had gone out a few times. George wasn't paying attention to Lynn, so she looked around the room, surveying her options for other dancing partners. Her eyes landed on Stephen Truscott, a handsome, popular, athletic boy from her class at school. At 14 years old and 5 feet 9 inches, he was very popular amongst the girls on the base. And after working up the courage to approach him, Lynn asked him to dance. Ever polite, Stephen accepted, even if dancing with Lynn wasn't something he necessarily wanted to do. But Lynn was oblivious and in heaven as she danced with Stephen. She didn't pick up on his cues at all when he tried to tactfully disentangle himself from her. When Stephen's patience with the situation began to wear thin, he asked the birthday girl Lorraine to step in and ask him to dance. Briefly exhilarated, Lynn returned to her spot on the sidelines and watched Stephen dance with Lorraine. She was smitten and would go out of her way to spend time with Stephen again. A few days later, on the evening of June 9th, the Harper family's day was rounding out to be one like any other. Where is Lynn? Her dinner is going to get cold. She's always a little late when she has a basketball game, remember? Her coach is giving her a ride home afterwards. Oh, who are they playing? Goderich. Oh, she'll be so excited if they win. And they did win. Lynn came home around 5.30 p.m. that evening, happy and flushed, from beating a rival basketball team in the area. Her parents were almost done with their dinner, so they retired to the living room, leaving Lynn with a plate of turkey, gravy, peas, and potatoes, with pineapple upside-down cake for dessert. It was a gorgeous summer night, and Lynn was eager to go back out and play. So she wolfed down her food as quickly as she could. A neighbor was taking Lynn's younger brother to swim that evening. 
not at the local swimming hole, but at the pool on the base, where an adult chaperone was needed to swim. Lynn asked if she could go too, but her parents said no. I can't ask our neighbor to take you too. What, am I going to ask him to come over here and do the dishes next? It's too much. No. It's no use pouting at me. You heard your mother. No means no. Lynn, you're wearing on my last nerve. If you can find a pass to swim at the pool solo, fine. You may go. But otherwise, stop whining about it. Lynn raced out to try to procure a pass, but soon returned empty-handed and frustrated. And Lynn had to do the dishes. It wasn't that she minded doing the chore. She just felt extremely frustrated to be stuck at home, missing out on the fun she was sure her classmates were having. And so, after finishing the dishes, Lynn got ready to go back out, putting on a special locket given to her by her aunt a few weeks before. It was 6.15 p.m. on the evening of June 9th when Lynn passed her mom on her way out the door. She didn't say where she was going. And her mother Shirley didn't ask. This was normal. In their safe, rural community, Lynn's parents were used to Lynn doing her own thing. Of course, Lynn's mom had no way of knowing it was the last time she'd ever see her daughter alive. Lynn headed toward the schoolyard, a walk that normally took about five minutes. But for some reason, she ventured down a meandering alternate route, which burned about 25 minutes. Along the way, she was seen by several neighbors. It was about 6.35 p.m. on June 9th when Lynn arrived at the schoolyard. Okay, brownies, get ready to do a scavenger hunt. Hey, hey, listen to me. I need you to focus. Heavens, it is tough to organize you girls when there are only two of us and 15 of you. Two of Lynn's girl guide leaders were at the schoolyard, organizing a scavenger hunt for their brownie scouts. Lynn was bored and looking for something to do, so she asked if she could stay and help. The leaders welcomed an extra set of hands, and Lynn set about expertly organizing the brownie scouts into groups. Once the children had started the hunt, Lynn stayed and chatted with the girl guide leaders for about 20 minutes. She mentioned that her mother was cross with her, referencing their small tiff over swimming. At around 7 p.m., Stephen Truscott, the handsome boy Lynn had danced with the week before, rode into the schoolyard. Lynn felt her heart flutter as she saw him. She quickly found an excuse to leave her girl guide leaders and go over to him. She felt bolder talking to him after they had danced together just a few nights before. So she asked him for a ride on his bike, saying she was looking to go towards the nearby Highway 8. Did she do this because she really wanted to get to Highway 8? Or was she seizing an opportunity to be close to Stephen? Regardless, Stephen agreed to give Lynn a ride, saying he was planning on going that direction anyway. He wanted to see if any kids were at the swimming hole. So the two children set off into the slightly setting sun, walking around the school to the county road that would take them to the highway. Two kids, an innocent crush. A bike ride on a hot summer night. It was like a scene in a feel-good movie. But, unbeknownst to Stephen and Lynn, the bike ride they were about to take would mark a point from which they could never return. 
Coming up, a search party from the airbase makes a shocking discovery. This episode is brought to you by Viore. Give the active people in your life something they'll truly appreciate. Performance apparel from Viore. Whether they're into running, surfing, hiking, or even just casual walks around the block, there's something for everyone. And if you're not sure what to gift them, you can't go wrong with something from Viore's Dream Knit Collection. It's the perfect gift and so comfortable. Get 20% off your first purchase today at Viore. V-U-O-R-I dot com slash Spotify. And now... Back to the story. In the early evening of June 9, 1959, Lynn Harper's stomach was full of butterflies. She had just asked her crush, Stephen Truscott, to give her a ride to the highway on his bike, and he had agreed. The two preteens lived on the Air Force Base in Clinton, Ontario, where their parents worked. Stephen noted that the time was around 7.20 p.m. as they passed a couple classmates on their way to the county road. When they got there, Lynn hopped on his crossbar and they set off toward the highway. As they gathered speed on the hot June evening, the wind streaming through their hair was a welcome relief from the sweltering day. Lynn happily turned around to talk to Stephen as they rode telling him about the argument she'd had with her mom earlier over swimming. She also asked if Stephen knew of the little white house on Highway 8, where a kind, eccentric man kept a yard full of Shetland ponies. Lynn and a friend had hitchhiked there in the past and fed the ponies apples. She said she might go there again tonight. The two passed familiar landmarks going past Lawson's Bush, a patch of woods named after a nearby farmer, and crossed the bridge arching over the swimming hole. Then they rode up to the busy Highway 8, where cars were zooming back and forth. And here's where the story gets murky. What we do know is that about half an hour later, Stephen returned to the schoolyard around 8 p.m. alone. One boy asked where Lynn was, having seen them ride off together. Did Stephen feed her to the fish? But Stephen told the boy no. He had just dropped her off at the highway like she had asked him to. Stephen then made his way to the basketball courts where some friends were hanging out, including Lorraine Wood, who'd hosted last week's party, and Stephen's 16-year-old brother, Ken. Ken gleefully reminded Stephen that it was his turn to babysit their younger siblings that night. So Stephen grabbed his bike and began pedaling home. There, he settled in for babysitting. Around 8.45 p.m., Stephen's friend Butch George stopped by his house. The two hung out for a bit while Stephen watched his two younger siblings. Meanwhile, at the Harper residence, June 9th was transforming from a normal day into a stressful evening. This isn't like Lynn. She knows she's supposed to be home by 9. Her bedtime is at 9.30 p.m., She'll come on home now, don't you worry. Do you think she's upset because we quarreled earlier? When she wanted to go swimming and I said that she couldn't? I'm sure she just lost track of time and is pedaling home right now. Yes, you're probably right. It's just... I don't know. I just can't shake this feeling that something isn't right. What if she tried to run away from home because of our fight? I'd feel terrible. I'd never forgive myself. Where would she even go if she did a thing like that? I don't know. Her grandmother's? That's 80 miles away. Lynn will turn up any moment now. Just you wait. But Lynn didn't turn up. 
Increasingly worried, Shirley asked Lynn's older brother, Barry, to go out and look for his sister. He didn't find any sign of her. At 10.30 p.m., George Archibald, the boy with whom Lynn had gone out a few times, stopped by the Harper residence to see if Lynn was around. He'd heard that Lynn was biking with Stephen and felt a little jealous. George found Barry in the front yard, who told him that Lynn had not come home. By now, Lynn's mother was distraught. I'm telling you, something is not right. This isn't like Lynn. Leslie, call the police! Now what am I going to tell them? That our daughter is skipping out on her curfew? They have more important things to worry about. More important than the safety of our daughter? Leslie, something could have happened to her. We need to do something. I really think that we should call the police. All right, all right. How about I go talk to Frank? Flight Sergeant Frank Johnson was the Harper's next-door neighbor and the NCO in charge of the Air Force Police. It was shortly after 11 p.m. when Leslie Harper went to see him on the night of June 9th. Frank, my daughter Lynn is missing. Her curfew is 9 p.m. and she never misses it. Probably just a little girl being naughty. But let's put out an alert so we can bring the little scamp home as soon as possible. I bet she just lost track of time at the custard cup eating ice cream with the older girls. Perhaps. This always happens when they become teenagers. Anywhere else you can think of that she might go? Mm, only place I can think of would be her grandmother's. She did quarrel a bit with Shirley after dinner tonight. She wanted to go to the pool and we said no. But that's not a reason to run away, is it? I mean, how would she even get there? It's 80 miles from here. Think she'd hitch a ride? Our Lynn? Oh, gosh. I can't imagine it. If you think it's possible she could have gone to her grandma's, we should put in the alert. Police need to know where to look, you know. Lynn Harper, age 12 years, 5 foot 3 inches tall, 100 pounds, white print blouse, blue shorts. Hasn't been home since about 1900 hours on June 9th, 1959. Possible she is hitchhiking to her grandmother's in Port Stanley, Ontario. Thanks, Frank. You're a good man. I'll let you know if anything turns up. She'll be back home soon, don't you worry now. Get some sleep. You'll need it the next few years. Within minutes, all provincial police cars were ordered to be on the lookout for a runaway little girl. The Harper family spent the night with the lights on and the drapes open like a lighthouse, praying it would guide their little girl home. On the morning of June 10th, there was still no sign of Lynn. Leslie Harper began to match his wife's level of worry. Something was off. Lynn was a responsible kid. She'd never stay out all night, would she? Leslie went around the neighborhood asking if anyone had any info on who may have seen his daughter last, hoping for a clue to her whereabouts. He was told about Stephen's bike ride with Lynn and went over to Stephen's house to talk to him. If Lynn's house was neat and orderly, the Truscott house was the opposite. On the far side of the permanent married quarters from Lynn's house, the Truscott residence was covered in bikes, toys, and the mess that comes with having four rowdy children. Yes? Hello? Can I help you? It's quite early in the morning. My little girl, Lynn, never came home last night. 
she may have run away. I understand that your son Stephen may have seen her before she ran off? Oh, uh, how curious. Stephen has never mentioned the Lynn. Uh, let me go and get him. What did you say your name was? I'm Leslie. Leslie Harper. Doris Truscott. Pleased to meet you. Stephen? Come on down here. Do you know a girl named Lynn? When Leslie Harper and Doris Truscott found themselves face-to-face on the morning of June 10th, they were strangers to each other. Neither one had any idea that their families would soon be irrevocably intertwined. Leslie Harper asked Stephen if he had seen his daughter, and Stephen said he had, recounting the events of the previous evening. Stephen said that he had seen her in the schoolyard and that she had asked him for a ride to Highway 8. He had given her a ride on his crossbar, passing Lawson's Bush, over the bridge, and on to the highway. He said that when he got to the highway, he dropped Lynn off. She didn't say where she was going, and he pedaled back toward the swimming hole. But, he said, something made him stop and look back. And there, he saw Lynn standing near the highway as a car pulled off the road and over to her, reversing slightly to get closer. Stephen was interested in cars, so he had a good idea as to the make and model of this particular car. It had large wings on the back, as was fashionable at the time. He thought it was a late-model Chevy with a large amount of chrome. He also noted that there was something yellow, maybe a license plate or possibly a bumper sticker. Oh, God. So... You're saying that the last time you saw Lynn, she was getting into a stranger's chromed-out 59 Chevy? I'm sure she's okay, Mr. Harper. Kids hitchhike. They do it all the time. Do they? Oh, goodness. I hope she comes home soon. On Thursday, June 11th, 1959, there was still no sign of Lynn. Two days had now passed since she had failed to come home. The airbase organized a search party of 250 men to go out and look for her. The men were split into groups to tackle different areas of the base. George Edens was in the group that searched Lawson's Bush, the patch of woods off the county road named after a nearby farmer. Since Lynn was still being treated as a runaway, the men weren't expecting to find anything there. But while searching, George came across a set of little girls' clothes. They were neatly stacked amongst the trees. A pair of turquoise shorts, two neatly rolled socks, and a pair of small brown loafers. George was wondering what on earth a little girl might be up to in the woods without her clothes when something made him stop short. There, barely concealed beneath some branches ripped from nearby trees, was the body of 12-year-old Lynn. She was nude from the chest down. Around her neck, her blouse had been tied and knotted below her chin. The only clue to the culprit behind this atrocious act was one very vague imprint in the dirt. It was difficult to say for sure, but the imprint looked like it could have been left by a shoe. Within hours, the Clinton Air Force Base was reeling. Who would do such a horrific thing to a little girl? The answer, for some would be nearly as horrifying as the crime. The last person to have seen Lynn alive was 14-year-old Stephen Truscott, 
who claimed that he saw her getting into a late model Chevy as he pedaled away from her on the fateful evening of June 9th, 1959. On June 12th, the day after Lynn's body was found, the police made an arrest. And so in this equation, we're solving for X. What is X? Anybody? Sir, I'm sorry to interrupt your class. Uh, well, what is it, officer? I'm afraid I'm going to have to ask one of your students to um, come with me. Son, get your things. Let's go. The boy was Stephen Truscott. Police removed him from his class and took him to the guardhouse on the base, where he was interrogated for over seven hours. He wasn't read his rights, and he didn't have a lawyer present, or even his parents. Dan and Doris Truscott actually had no idea that their son had been taken into custody. With one child having disappeared, later turning up dead, Stephen's parents were understandably panicked when he didn't come home from school. 14-year-old Stephen was scared and anxious, but did his best to keep a stoic exterior. This frustrated the lead detective on the case, a rising star named Harold Graham, who was determined to get a confession. But Stephen stuck to his story. He said he rode with Lynn from the school past Lawson's Bush, over the bridge and to the highway, where he saw her getting into a late model Chevy. When hours passed and Stephen still hadn't confessed, Graham decided to have a medical exam performed on Stephen. He hoped it would yield forensic evidence that might force Stephen into a confession. In an effort to be objective, Graham brought in the Truscott's family doctor, Dr. Joseph Addison, who performed the exam alongside the police's own medical examiner. By this time, Stephen's parents had learned their son's whereabouts, and Stephen's father, Dan, had arrived at the station. A military man himself, Stephen's father saw no reason to question whether the proceedings were being done according to proper protocol. And when Stephen was asked to submit to a medical exam, it didn't occur to Stephen's father not to acquiesce. Besides, it would have looked suspicious if Stephen didn't agree to the exam. Dan figured his son had nothing to hide, so why risk appearing difficult? The two doctors examined Stephen late into the evening on June 12th. They were extremely surprised by what they found. On either side of Stephen's penis were two very large sores, each about the size of a quarter. Stephen didn't have an explanation for how he got the sores, but said that they had been there for about four to five weeks. The doctors were doubtful. For one thing, the sores seemed painful enough that they didn't believe Stephen could have lived with them for very long without being driven to seek help. The doctors guessed that the sores were no more than a week old and had been present for at least 48 hours. They concluded that the sores were likely the product of Stephen forcibly violating Lynn. Meanwhile, in another corner of the police precinct, district pathologist Dr. John Penniston was just beginning Lynn Harper's autopsy. Dr. Penniston, how goes it? Well, it seems the little girl had a full stomach at the time of her death. I can clearly see about one pound of poorly masticated peas, potatoes, turkey, and corn. What does that mean? 
Well, for a healthy girl like Lynn, I'd say she couldn't have eaten more than two hours before the time of her death. I'd say she died between 7.15 and 7.45 p.m. That's precisely the time she was on an alleged bike ride with Stephen Truscott. Things were not looking good for Stephen, but he still refused to confess. Inspector Graham was growing increasingly frustrated. Seeing this, the Truscott family doctor asked if he could take a turn questioning the boy. If things weren't exactly to protocol before, allowing a civilian to interrogate Stephen was throwing procedure out the window. It's not clear what Inspector Graham was thinking when he told the doctor to go ahead. It was now the early hours of Saturday, June 13th, nearing the end of a very long day for Stephen Truscott. He had been removed from his school, questioned for many hours, and had received an invasive and embarrassing medical examination, and now he was being questioned by his doctor. Stephen had been asked over and over if he had taken Lynn into Lawson's bush at any point during their bike ride, and over and over he had told them no, he hadn't. But this time, when the doctor asked that same question, Stephen said he didn't know. He may have gone into the bush. He wasn't sure. Maybe he did. Stephen's vague admission, gathered in the wee hours of the morning by the family doctor, was enough to convince Inspector Graham that he had his culprit. At about 2.30 a.m. on June 13th, 14-year-old Stephen Truscott was charged with the murder of Lynn Harper, a crime punishable by death. Coming up, Stephen Truscott goes to trial. And now, back to the story. 14-year-old Stephen Truscott had just been arrested for the murder of his classmate, Lynn Harper, a 12-year-old girl living on the Air Force base in Clinton, Ontario. The trial was scheduled to begin about three months later, on September 16, 1959. Stephen's family didn't have the money to hire a lawyer, but they approached a well-known attorney named Frank Donnelly and asked if he would represent their son pro bono. Your son is Stephen Truscott? The Stephen Truscott I've been reading about in the papers for weeks? I'm afraid so. So what do you think? Will you represent our son? Are you kidding me? Of course I will. Really? Wow. Thank you. You don't know how much this means to us. No problem. You know, I was actually up for a promotion to be a judge, which I will have to postpone to take this case. But it's totally worth it. This is going to be the case of the century. The Truscotts were about to find out just how true this statement was. Stephen's trial began on Wednesday, September 16, 1959, just a little over three months after Lynn's murder. The Juvenile Delinquents Act would have dictated that Stephen, a minor, be tried anonymously. But the town's collective thirst for justice probably led to the judge's decision to try him publicly as an adult. Stephen was put in a wooden box facing the judge, as was customary in Canada at the time. When asked, he pleaded not guilty to the murder of Lynn Harper. The trial drew an enormous crowd. Everyone in the town wanted to see someone pay for what had happened to Lynn. But not everyone thought that that someone should be Stephen, 
Many were convinced that the kind, well-liked boy could not possibly have done what he was accused of. Even Lynn's parents were uncertain. Exhausted and emotionally destroyed, they too sat in the courthouse. I just want to see that monster put away forever. I know. I want whoever did this to our baby to be locked away too. But we don't know if it's Stephen yet. He hasn't had his trial. I know he did it. I know it as sure as I know my Lynn is gone. Meanwhile, for Stephen's parents, their nightmare was just beginning. Frank, do you think we could have some women on the jury? Women? Why? I don't know. I was just thinking that maybe some women with teenage sons might be more sympathetic to Stephen. They might be more willing to hear him out and give him a fair trial. No, no. Women are too emotional. You just leave the jury selection stuff to me, sweetheart. I... Are you the lawyer or am I? Oh, that's right. It's a me. Don't you worry, Doris. Stephen has nothing to hide. The trial will show that. We just need people who can think rationally and clearly. The jury was 12 men selected from a pool of 90 locals. They were farmers, laborers, and people who worked local vocational jobs. The defense's case hinged on proving the timeline Stephen had presented to the police was plausible. They needed to convince the jury that he was biking with Lynn when he said he was. This meant finding witnesses who could corroborate Stephen's story, saying that they saw him on the road that stretched from the bridge and the highway between 7.15 and 7.45 p.m. on June 9th. A quick geography refresher here. The road that Lynn and Stephen were on was called the County Road. If you started on the County Road from the school and headed north, you would pass Lawson's Bush on your right before going over the bridge of the swimming hole. And then finally you'd come to Highway 8, which ran perpendicular to the County Road. If Stephen had been seen with Lynn after passing Lawson's Bush, that would prove his innocence. Fortunately for him, three people came forward and said that they had seen him in just those circumstances. One was an 11-year-old boy named Dougie Oates, whose favorite thing in the world was catching turtles in the river. Dougie was standing up by the bridge on the evening of June 9th as Lynn and Stephen zoomed past, so he saw them at close range. He remembered saying hi to the pair as they went by. Further down the river, Another boy said he saw Lynn and Stephen at that same time. His name was Gordon Logan, and he was a 12-year-old using the warm evening to do some fishing. Gordon says that he saw Stephen a second time about five minutes later, alone. This further corroborates Stephen's story from when he was interrogated, in which he said that he dropped off Lynn at the highway, then came back and stood on the bridge for five to ten minutes. Stephen was also seen at this same time by Dougie's 16-year-old brother, Alan Oates. For a lot of the children questioned in the case, exact times were fuzzy, as they didn't wear watches and had no way of telling the time. But Alan was sure that the time he saw Stephen was around 7.45, because his favorite program had just ended on TV. The defense also challenged the suggestion that the footprint found at the scene of the crime could be Stevens. Even the officer who found the imprint was reluctant to say with any certainty that it could belong to any one specific shoe. In fact, 
it was too faint to even see what kind of soul the shoe had. With no forensic evidence to tie him to the crime scene and the three boys who saw him during the window of time when Lynn died, Stephen's lawyer was confident that they'd be getting a verdict of not guilty. But it wasn't quite so simple. There were also witnesses who had been on the road between 7.15 and 7.45 who had not seen Stephen, which the prosecution said indicated that Stephen must have been in Lawson's bush with Lynn during that time. The prosecution argued that if Stephen and Lynn were actually on the road like Stephen said they were, then by all accounts, they should have been seen by at least one of these people. One such person was Jocelyn Gaudette, a shy and pockmarked girl in Stephen and Lynn's class who, like Lynn, often found herself on the fringes of the in-crowd. Jocelyn claims that the day before Lynn's disappearance on June 8th, Stephen had made a date to go with her into Lawson's bush the following evening to look for lost calves. Stephen says he never made this arrangement, but Jocelyn says that on the evening of June 9th, around 5.50 p.m., Stephen came to her house to get her for their date. Jocelyn was still eating dinner with her family and couldn't go. It's reported that local kids did many things in Lawson's bush. They built forts, hiked around, and went looking for calves. But police thought that what Stephen was planning to do there with Jocelyn was a bit more romantic in nature. Jocelyn was key for the prosecution. They said that her story established a motive for Stephen. He wanted to go into the bush with someone, and when Jocelyn bailed, he took the next available girl he could find, Lynn. By their account, this was a crime of passion. Teenage hormones that could not be suppressed. The crime of a sexual deviant who lost control. And that wasn't the end of Jocelyn's story. She claimed that after she finished dinner on June 9th, she had gone out looking for Stephen. She rode up and down the county road looking for him, but couldn't find him anywhere. But as with many of the other children, Jocelyn's testimony was problematic. The time that she was supposed to have been out on the road looking for Stephen shifted back and forth between 6.30 p.m. and 7.30 p.m. Maybe she was just bad at keeping details straight, or maybe she'd been doing something she didn't want to own up to. We do know that at one point during the trial, Jocelyn went to Farmer Lawson, the owner of Lawson's Bush, and asked him to change his story to match hers. So it's definitely fishy that she didn't see Stephen on the road during the window of 7.15 to 7.45 on June 9th, but so is all of her testimony. But she wasn't the only one with a less-than-airtight story. Next, the prosecution called Butch George to the stand the friend of Stevens who'd visited him on June 9th while he babysat his siblings after Lynn was last seen. The prosecution said that Butch was a second person who should have come into contact with Stephen and Lynn if they were really out on the road as Stevens said they were. Butch claimed that he had been out on the county road looking for Stephen on the night of June 9th, but he hadn't been able to find him anywhere. This testimony had the potential to be devastating to Stephen's case. Despite the fact that Butch's account of the time that he had been on the road kept shifting. But what he had to say next was even worse for Stephen. 
He admitted to having told several friends that Stephen had been in Lawson's bush with Lynn. At one point, Butch claimed that Stephen himself had told him that he was in the bush with Lynn looking for a calf on the day of their bike ride. But Butch's account varied widely over the course of the investigation and trial. And not just the trial, he was generally known around town to be a bit of a fibber. Whatever the case, his testimony would have dire consequences for his friend Stephen. Butch's story may have changed, but the prosecution had an explanation for the changes. They said that Butch had lied to protect his friend, but once he realized how serious the situation was, had decided to come clean. While neither Butch George nor Jocelyn Gaudet were particularly reliable witnesses, their combined testimonies painted a damning story, one that would be bolstered even further when, several days into the trial, Lynn's mother, Shirley, took the stand. Mrs. Harper, had your daughter ever been known to travel long distances on her own? No, sir. Had she ever, to your knowledge, hitchhiked? Not to my knowledge, but I guess I often didn't know where she was. But uh, my answer is no, not to my knowledge. Uh. Please don't talk out of turn, Mrs. Truscott. But the Harpers thought Lynn could have gone all the way to her grandmother's on the night she went missing. That's quite enough, Mrs. Truscott. Mrs. Truscott did have a point. Lynn's parents had thought she might have gone to her grandmother's on the night of June 9th. And her friends had given accounts of hitchhiking with Lynn in the past, usually to see the ponies on Highway 8 that she had mentioned to Stephen the night she went missing. But there's no evidence that her friends were ever asked about Lynn's hitchhiking tendencies in court. Odd, since they likely would have had a much better idea of this than Lynn's parents. But in the courtroom, the prosecution had successfully challenged the image of Lynn Harper as a frequent hitchhiker. With this on the floor, the team shifted its attack to the crucial portion of Stephen's testimony. The moment on June 9th when he claimed to have seen Lynn getting into a strange car. The lawyers seized on Stephen's description of the car, questioning whether a boy could see not only the make and model, but also the license plate from a distance of some 1,300 feet. Their attack ignored the fact that Stephen had actually never claimed to know the maker model of the car with any certainty. He just said what he thought he saw. Likewise, he said he saw something yellow on the back of the car, but he never claimed to read the license plate. And then there were the mysterious sores on Stephen's genitals. Next to the stand, we have Dr. John Penniston. Dr. Penniston, you examined the body for signs of rape, correct? Correct. And did you find signs of rape on the victim? Her body was beginning to have significant decay by the time she was found, but it is my opinion that there are wounds in her genital region that are consistent with having been raped. And would these be consistent with the wounds found on Stephen Truscott's penis? They could be. Yes. The all-male jury was repulsed by the gruesome details of Lynn's rape and the sores on Stephen's genitals. After hearing testimony for two weeks, they were ready to give their verdict. On September 30th, the Harpers, the Truscotts, 
and the entire town of Clinton waited on pins and needles as the jury filed back into the courtroom. Will the defendant and the defense counsel please stand? Members of the jury, have you reached a verdict? We have, my lord. We find the accused guilty on all charges. My son, my baby boy. You said all the evidence was circumstantial. You said they'd never find him guilty. I, uh, I don't know what to say. I'm as surprised as you are. He's just a child, a child. <laughs> On September 30th, 1959, Stephen Truscott was sentenced to death by hanging for the murder of his 12-year-old classmate, Lynn Harper. Just 14 years old himself, he was the youngest person in Canada ever to face the death penalty. Shirley and Leslie Harper, will you give a statement? We don't want to talk to the media. We're just glad that it's over now. It's finally over, and that monster is going to pay. (laughs) But things were far from over. After the trial... Stephen's family would continue to appeal the court's decision and fight for their son's freedom. Decades later, the testimony of several of the prosecution's star witnesses would come under fire, while shocking new details emerged to paint the case in a new light, including a lost psychiatric file that might hold the identity of a killer who walked free. But as each new detail emerged and the possibility that Stephen Truscott was innocent became more plausible, a disturbing new possibility came into focus. For if Lynn Harper's killer was truly still at large, it meant that they had destroyed not one, but two young lives. Thanks again for tuning into Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next week with part two of the murder of Lynn Harper. You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Unsolved Murders, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Unsolved Murders on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Unsolved Murders into the search bar. And for more information on Lynn Harper's murder, amongst the many sources we used, we found Until You Are Dead by Julian Scher and The Fifth Estate, a documentary on the subject quite helpful. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Yep, if we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler and developed by Ron Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, with sound design by Michael Langsner. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Mahler, Maggie Admire, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Lena Kuyumjin and stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. 
The amazing cast of voice actors includes Jerry Courtney Osteen, Susanna Corrington, Sky King, Harris Markson, and Steve Pinto. 